Turn your Bibles to John 14. We've been away from John for the last few months. John has been a sort of a, an escort to so many different places in the last six years. We, uh, we began the journey in John six years ago, almost seven. And um, we haven't been enslaved to him, but he's just guided us so many different places that he's, he's a treasured friend. And um, he's guiding us today, Lord, through John. Uh, is guiding us back into the final hours before Christ went to the cross. <clears throat> you can imagine that if you had a friend or a family member that knew they were dying and they had a few hours left with you or a few days, the sort of things that they would talk to you about would be really important to them. And you'd probably be really attentive to it Sensing their urgency, the gravity of the moment. That would have been the case in these final hours as the disciples uh, walked with Christ after the Lord's Supper. The passage we're going to climb into this morning is after he's already broken bread with them over the supper. They've had the Lord's Supper together. Judas is charged out, he's identified as betrayer. All the disciples and Jesus included were troubled over that. Judas was actually the money bearer, money keeper. He probably would have been the most trusted among them, yet he's the one that's leaving. And Jesus charges them with a command that says, let not your hearts be troubled. Doesn't sound like a command, but it is. He's saying, don't stay troubled over this. Believe in God, believe also in me. Moments later, he tells them that he's going to a place where they can't go. They'll go later, but they can't go quite yet. Somebody asks, well, what is the way? And he says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And then a few moments later, he promises them, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. That's where we pick up today in John chapter 14, verse 21. <clears throat> Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, mind you, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. A few things I want to bring out before we really climb into this passage. Starting in verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them. That's the key phrase to unlock that whole paragraph there. Whoever has my commandments, and the original language points toward ownership. He's saying whoever owns what I've said. Whoever actually takes on my way as his own way. And whoever keeps the things I've said, that's the one who loves me. He's painting the picture there. He's pointing out and describing someone who lives as if Christ really is the way, the truth, and the life. Not as if Christ is the insurance agent the fireman, the EMT, and the chump. He's speaking of someone here who truly loves him and says, this person has my commandments. They've owned them. They've eaten them. They chew on them. They live them. And they keep my ways. That's the one who loves me. And that one who loves me like that, that one I manifest myself to. The word manifest actually means to make it clear. I make myself clear to that sort of lover. Later on, he says, my father and I will actually move in with that sort of lover. Some pretty strong teachings in this passage and again, our Lord thought this important enough to share in his final moments. 
And then John thought it important enough to include, he didn't describe every conversation that Christ had over the course of three years. Books couldn't contain it. He wrote down the things that he deemed important. And in fact, this sort of teaching with love and obedience becomes sort of John's mantra. John wrote some letters later, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and Revelation, we believe. And they are full, chock full of those things going together. Love and obedience. Turn to 1st John. <clears throat> We're going to consult this expert on love and obedience and see what else he has to say to help us understand what's being said here. But I want to prepare you for something. I fear that we can hear something like this and just let it go in one ear and out the other and think, oh, okay, I got that. And not really take in the gravity of what's being said here. The one who truly loves me keeps my commandments, obeys my words, is actually kind of an alarming statement. If we're really honest with ourselves. That's where we're going to go in these next few minutes, and we're going to unpack this and see what happens. The one who owns my ways and obeys my words loves me. If you don't own his ways and obey his words, you don't love him at all. Let's see what else John has to say. 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 3. <clears throat> and by this, that's an important this. This isn't, I mean, this is the kind of this you want to pay attention to. And by this, we know that we've come to know him. He's about to tell you something that's really key. If you want to know if you're legit or not, if you want to know if you really love Jesus or not, if you're really in the faith or not, these sort of passages are the sort of passages to really pay attention to. By this we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. Wow. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. Wow, that's strong, John. Whoever says they love him but don't keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may be sure that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. That sounds like ownership. I'm owning his ways as my own. That's, this is just a reflection of what we've already heard in John 14. Let's look at chapter 3, verse 18. <clears throat> John writes, he says, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Let's not just say we love him. Let's just not talk about us loving him. Let's just not throw our amens around and our uh-huhs. Let's just really actually live it out with deed and with truth. Because it looks like love actually has an ethic. It's not just an emotion. It actually has an expression. It has a deed. It has application. As we own his ways... <clears throat> And as we keep his word. Look at chapter 5, verse 2. By this we know that we love the children of God. So if you wonder if you love each other, let's look at this. When we love God and obey his commandments. Look at verse 3. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. Love and obedience go together. Anybody that says otherwise has not read their Bibles. Look over at the next page in the second letter from John. 2 John, verse 6. There's only one chapter. <clears throat> and this is love that we walk according to his commandments. Here, ownership. Here, his way is my way, so I walk the way he walked. And this is the commandment. Love for God is, is obedience. When you connect that with other passages that he said here, you realize that what he's saying is the one who is a professor of love for Christ, who is not a keeper of what Christ has said and done, 
is no lover at all, but in fact a liar. Man, that hits me hard. I I don't know if it hits you the way it hits me, but it really hits me hard. It seems clear that love without obedience isn't love at all. We've got to really be wondering what this means. If you say you love him but don't obey him, then you're a liar. Let that hit you. And if you might be sitting here thinking, sure, I obey him. He's not talking about me. What What do you mean? Let's look at 1 John. Back in a few pages before is where we were. 1 John chapter 1, <clears throat> beginning in verse 8. If we say, man, he's not talking about me. I obey him and keep his ways. Look at this passage. <clears throat> if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. What? If we say we have no sin, if we say this isn't applying to us, then John also says, well, you're a liar there too. If you say you love him, yet you disobey him, you're a liar. And if you say you don't disobey him, you're a liar too. Man, let the weight of that hit you. He says the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if we say we have not sinned, we actually make him a liar and his word is not in us we've got to let those realities hit us we got to let john 14 hit us where he says you will if you love me you will keep my words you will keep my ways you will keep my commandments i'll manifest myself to you i'll make my home with you and the same person that recorded those words says if you disobey him you're a liar And he also says, if you say you don't disobey him, you're a liar too. Man, I caught myself when I'm really weighing all this stuff in a serious quandary. It's a pickle. How in the world do we sort this out? What gives? It really, frankly, seems pretty doggone hopeless. How do we know if we're a big lying fake with no love in us? Or how do we know if we're one of those who are forgiven that he just said? If we're confessing our sins one to another, we will be healed. How do we know if we're not those? That person, that sin-confessing, forgiven, cleansed sinner who's reckoned love. How do we know if we're the liar or the loving? It's a good question. It's worth asking. Paul wrote to the church in Corinth and he told him, he said, you need to examine yourselves to see if you're even in the faith. We can't do this too often. And it's worth doing when we encounter a passage like this. It says, if you love me, you obey me. I'm going to offer a couple of illustrations to help you visualize how this sorts out. I'm going to describe two, two sorts, two types of love. The first sort of love I'm going to call Eddie Haskell love. Go ahead and put Eddie up on the... We got Eddie, okay. Eddie Haskell love. I may be dating myself. Some of you younger folks are going, who's Eddie? Who's he? Some of you are from my generation or older. You know exactly who I'm talking about. This is taken directly from Wikipedia. The son of George and Agnes, Eddie Haskell, was the smart-mouthed best friend of Wally Cleaver. This character has become a cultural reference recognized, I'm going to introduce you to a couple new words, as an archetype for insincere sycophants. An archetype means like a prototype. He's the model. He is the visual aid. You look in the dictionary under... Sycophant, which I'm about to tell you what that is, you see Eddie Haskell. A sycophant is actually a self-seeking flatterer. This was the best, best one, I, 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 the best definition I enjoyed. A fawning parasite. <laughs> Eddie Haskell is a sweet picture of that. The archetype became so well known that the term Eddie Haskell was adopted into everyday use. He was known for his neat grooming. Isn't that appropriate? Man, his nose was clean and his hair was parted. Looked like the model young man. Talking about Eddie Haskell love now. Looked like the model 
But behind that neat grooming, he's hiding his shallow and sneaky character. Typically, Eddie would greet his friend's parents with overdone good manners and often a compliment such as, that sure is a lovely dress you're wearing, Mrs. Cleaver. I saw one a little YouTube clip where he was saying, Miss Cleaver, your hair looks fabulous. And her hair's all tall, you know. However, when no parents were around, Eddie was always up to no good, either conniving with his, with his friends or picking on Wally's younger brother, Beaver. Eddie's two-faced style was also typified by his efforts to curry favor by trying to talk to adults at the level he thought they would respect, such as referring to their children, his peers, mind you, as Theodore, which is Beaver's much-disliked given name, and Wallace, even though the parents themselves called them Beaver and Wally. Eddie, in reality, was the archetype of glad-handing. He was the archetype of the insincere, fawning parasite. And you know, the reality is, Eddie didn't love anybody but himself. The reality is that this sort of love is worth considering because ultimately what the picture here is, it's a picture of self-love. And self-love can and often does hide behind clean noses and parted hair. Self-love can hide behind spiritual words and glad-handing. How you doing, man? Oh, it's great. It's all good. Bless the Lord. Good to see you. See you next week. And meanwhile, they stab you in the back as they're talking to you like that. You've been in church long enough. You know that that happens. Glad-handing at its worst. Self-love can hide behind what might even look like worship. God said of the nation of Israel, he said, This people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. This sort of love happens every single day. We honor him with our lips. Gee, God, your deliverance looks terrific. In Hosea, he said of Israel and Judah, he said, Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes away early. You've got to know that the love that he's speaking up here in John 14, this love that actually is a love where God manifests himself and moves in, is not this kind of love. That's no love at all. Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes away early. You know what I'm talking about when you walk out to get the paper? And you come in, your feet are soaking wet. You walk out about 30, 45 minutes later, and it's gone. He says of Israel and Judah, that's the way your love is. And that's not love at all. That's Hetty Haskell love. And I want to tell you guys, I see it all the time. All the time. A crisis in marriage or a crisis in a relationship or a crisis in work or a crisis in health and something shows up and it looks white hot. I see this movement and this activity and this friction in the life of that person that's in the crisis and I'm praying, Lord, I pray that that's love. It's something that's white hot. But usually, not always, Usually when the pain of the crisis goes away, and I say not always because I have faces in my mind right now where crisis has brought someone to what seems to be true faith. And faces not only in my mind, I can see the faces in here. But usually when the crisis ebbs, so does that white hot something. When the pain of the crisis goes away, when the marriage quiet, quiets, or the marriage actually folds, or the test results come back negative, you mean I'm not dying? Or the job situation settles, that white-hot something turns cold and passes away like the dew before 10 a.m. That's not the love that's spoken of here. That's Eddie Haskell love, and that's not the love that's spoken of here. I want to contrast it with the love that seems to be described here. Contrast it with love that I'm going to call linebacker love. We have 
That's Dick Butkus. For those of you who kept up with football years ago, you know that Dick Butkus was the baddest man on the football field. He was the embodiment of pain. He played linebacker. In high school, I played center on the football team. His number was 51. I wanted my number to be 51 too. I played center, though. I wasn't a linebacker. The job description of a center is really pretty simple, which is why I played it at that and the fact that I weighed 240 pounds. You get the ball to the quarterback, and you block either the nose guard or the linebacker, or just on occasion, you might have to go down and block a tackle. But usually for me, it was a linebacker. And I found linebackers to be a lot like Dick Butkus. I found them to be the most aggressive, most angry, most troubled, the smelliest, the ugliest, the hairiest, the scariest men on the football field. And one thing I want to tell you that was true across the board for every linebacker that I ever encountered is that they were driven. They look like this dude. They thought like this dude. They live like he looks like. All there. They were focused on one thing, and on the football field, that one thing was the football. They followed it, and they went after it at all costs. They loved to get the ball crumpling whoever might be holding it or whoever might happen to be in the way of it. They were all about the football. And oftentimes, what went along with this drive was the occasional offsides. You've seen it. They're up there about to blitz. Sometimes they blitz and the ball hadn't even been snapped. Looking like a fool. They only one on the football field. Tackling the quarterback. He hadn't even gotten the football yet. They're driven. Sometimes they jump off sides with a face mask or holding or roughing the passer or unnecessary roughness. And after one of those penalties, you could watch the linebacker jump up oblivious to the notion that he actually did anything wrong. Maybe defending himself just for a moment, and then if he's like the rest of the linebackers that I ever encountered, he's punching himself in the helmet. God, I can't believe I did that. Berating himself as he walks back to the huddle. Slapping himself in the helmet like that was really going to hurt. The picture of the linebacker. And then like a tiger refocusing on the next play. There he is. Where's the ball? Where's the ball on the next snap? The one thing that's true of linebackers is they are driven and they love the ball. I want to show you a biblical linebacker. Turn to Matthew chapter 17. This is the kind of love that I believe is described here in John 14. And we get to see a linebacker in action. Peter was a fisherman. But I think if football had been around 2,000 years ago, he probably would have been a professional linebacker on a football team. He was that kind of guy. Driven. Let's watch him in action. Matthew chapter 17 is a pretty funny chapter for uh, for me. I was reading it with my family a couple weeks ago. And we had one of the funniest family Bible study times that we've ever had. Just hoo-hawing, rolling, watching Peter. So let's watch this biblical linebacker. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Okay, so take it in. Jesus is leaving the 12 with a few, kind of a small handful of the closest. And he's going up to a high mountain. And he goes up there and he's transfigured before them. That's Transfigured, what is that? Sort of weird. We're about to find out. His face shone like the sun. All right, just imagine you're sitting there hanging out with Jesus and his face starts shining so that you can't even look at it anymore. His face starts shining like the sun and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Take in the way to that moment. Jesus goes off with a few of his closest They go up to a mountaintop, and who knows, was Jesus praying, or was he just hanging out, or whatever he was doing. His face starts shining like the sun, and then all of a sudden, he's not alone. He's got Moses and Elijah talking to him. I'm thinking if I'm one of the disciples, I'm going to be pretty quiet at that moment. 
I'm thinking this would, be not, this would not be a good time to even open your mouth. Just take in the weight of the moment. But then in verse 4, Peter said to Jesus, Hey, Jesus, Lord, it sure is a good thing we're here. If you wish, I'll make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. I'm going to tell you what, that's offsides right there, brother. You just jumped offsides. He hadn't even snapped the ball yet. You jumped offsides and make a complete fool of yourself in this pregnant moment where the best thing you could do is just be silent and take it in. Peter says, hey, Jesus, it's a good thing we're here. Let's make tents for the three of you. And why, you, know, you, you can imagine that James and John are elbowing him saying, shut up, Peter. Do you see what's happening? I can't imagine that Jesus didn't look out of the corner of his shiny face eye and look at Peter like, you're such a knucklehead. <laughs> and here's what happens. While Peter, we know that God kind of butted in. The father butts in. While Peter is still speaking, verse 5, he was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, shut up, Peter. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. That's why we laugh so hard. They didn't really say shut up, Peter. But he might as well have. What a, what a bonehead. This is ever a time to be silent and take in the moment and worship. And when the disciples heard, what they heard God the Father speaking, they fell on their faces and were terrified. Penalty, 15 yards, stupidity. Now, look across the page at chapter 16. Verse 13. Let's watch this linebacker in action. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, oh, you know, uh, some of them say that you're John the Baptist. Others say you're Elijah. And I heard some other dudes saying that you, you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, he said, okay, men, who've been walking with me, who've seen me in action, who've heard my words. But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, he said, Blessed are you, Simon Peter, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Nice play, Peter. Man, you got the ball that time, boy. You nailed it. You confessed the living God. That was beautiful. But watch the next play. Verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. He's preparing his disciples for his death. And Jesus is teaching them, preparing them. I'm going to die. And it's going to be gruesome. And it's going to be unjust. And you're going to be confused about it. And Jesus is teaching him in that moment. And Peter says, Peter, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Just take that word in. Just that word alone. Even if there's no other details there, we know that Peter has had another foul. Peter's rebuking God the Son. Okay, bad play, Pete. He took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you, because I'm going to put my elbow beside their head. They have to get through me to get to you, and that's not going to happen. You remember how you said you're going to build your church on me? Because I'm the man, and I'm going to take them down. Watch what Jesus says to him. He turned and said to Peter. He looked in the eyes of this man that he said, I'm going to build my church on the likes of you. And he says these words, he says, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, you are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. 
Man, penalty. Flag is thrown. Penalty is thinking like Satan and being hindrance to the living God. You going to build your church on the likes of Peter? Yeah, because he's a linebacker. A linebacker lover. Let's look at Matthew chapter 26. Let's look at another play. Starting in verse 69. <clears throat> now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard and the servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus, the Galilean? But he denied it before them all, saying, I don't even know what you mean. You go build your church on the likes of this? And he went outside to the entrance. Another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, Hey, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. The same man that said, You're the Christ. You're the Son of the living God. Days later, weeks later, says, I don't even know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. And then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed, and Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly, and he punched himself in the face mask. Penalty. Denying Christ. Three times. But he's a linebacker lover. Turn to John chapter 21. This is the sweetest picture. This is the sweetest picture. This is what gives me hope. We ought to all be confused that Jesus is going to build his church on the likes of Peter. But watch this. Watch the heart of this man. You want to know what blameless love, linebacker love looks like? You're about to see it. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. He's risen by now, crucified and risen. He revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, You know what? I'm going fishing. He's still unreconciled right here. He hadn't reconciled with this Christ that he's denied three times. He said, man, I'm going back to my old life. How many times do you do that? You get so down on yourself, you beat yourself around about your helmet, you berate yourself. You say, I'm just going back to my old life. I'm a hindrance to him. Peter said, I'm just going fishing. What are you doing fishing for? That's your old life. You think the others would talk him out of it. No, Peter, don't do that. But they said, you know what, Pete? We'll go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. That's a beautiful picture. Going back to your old life, and it's going to be quite empty, just like that boat. They caught nothing, man. And just as the day was breaking, oh, his mercies are new every morning. Just as the day is breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, sweet, gentle shepherd, says, children, Do you not have any fish? <laughs> they answered him, No. Nair. Nary one. Fishing all night long. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. So they cast it, and they weren't able to haul it in because of the quantity of the fish. And the disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, said, <laughs> said to Peter, he said, man, it's the Lord. 
Watch the linebacker. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples, however, came in the boat. Peter, though, he's not going to wait on him to paddle. He's going to look like Michael Phelps doing the butterfly all the way in to the seashore. Whoosh! I'm going to go see my Jesus. I wronged him last time I saw him. And the cock crowed. And man, I got to get to the ball. You can't paddle fast enough. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. And when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and he hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come on, let's eat. Let's dine. Let's have some breakfast. Now none of the disciples dare ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came and took the bread. You just hear breaking it. He took the bread, he gave it to them, and so with the fish. And this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. And watch, Peter, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, come here. Oh, it's a sweet moment. Come here, Simon. Come here, linebacker. Son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. I know I put my foot in my mouth often. Like that time when you were transfigured and you're talking with Elijah and Moses. And I chime in like a big knucklehead. But you know it. You know it, Jesus. You know I love you. James and John thought I was a bonehead, but you know I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. I know at times I was a hindrance to you. I know at times I even look like Satan. And I sounded like Satan in the things I said and the things I did. But you know I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said it to him three times, a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. I know there's a maiden in Caiaphas' courtyard that'll say otherwise. And there's another one just outside the court. say otherwise and there's a crowd of people that heard me deny you that will say otherwise but you know that I love you he said feed my sheep and he ended that conversation with two words he said follow me put your helmet back on your head Get your butt back on that field and follow me. That's love. That's linebacker love. Man, I need to see Peter. I need to see Peter loving like that and being loved like that. Because it gives me hope for me and for you. Because I know you and I know me. We've got to have a Lord like this to live out John 14. It gives me hope, man. I see Peter who failed at times 
I see Peter and I realize that obedience is a product of adoption, not a circumstance earning it, and it will never be. Boy, I needed Peter. What's described here, what we saw from Peter today, these little snapshots, is we saw what's called blamelessness. It's throughout our Bible, this term, blamelessness. That's a word for linebackerness. You want to know what love looks like? It looks blameless. Noah was blameless. Job was blameless. David were all three considered blameless. David, a murderer and an adulterer. Penalty, murder. Penalty, adultery. Blamelessness does not mean sinlessness. Blamelessness means that you are all there. It's that forgiven sweet spot that we need to find as we're reading John 14. It's what true love looks like. Blamelessness. Having his commandments and keeping them, yet disobeying them at times. And if you say you don't, you're a liar. But when you do, and even when you don't, you're cleansed by the blood of Jesus. That's blamelessness. That's good medicine. God manifests himself to the obedient lover, the blameless obedient lover. I'm going to share three psalms with you briefly, just three passages, and then we're going to take the supper together. Like the disciples took the supper with Jesus on the seashore. Psalm chapter 11, verse 7, just listen. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. He manifests himself to the upright. He makes himself clear. We get to see him when we're upright. Psalm 15, verse 1. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right. He who walks and plays and loves like a linebacker. And does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. And who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor. Nor takes up reproach against his friend. In whose eyes a vile person is despised. But who honors those who fear the Lord. Who swears to his own hurt and does not change. Who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. That's good medicine. Psalm 24. Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, a.k.a. undivided, blameless, all there, linebacker heart. Who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. That's an appropriate place for us to go as we go to the Lord's Supper. The only way we can lift clean hands, fellow sinners, all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. No one's righteous. No, not one. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The only way that we can approach him with clean hands, folks, is because of the blood of another. And you know what our work is? You know what our commandment is? To go bathe in it every single day. To go get some more of it. Because we need it, every last one of us. We need lots of sin-covering blood. Like Peter, we need lots of grace. Anytime we talk about obedience, we better be talking about a lot of blood. I'm going to read this account in John 21 again. And we're going to take the supper together. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, No. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. So they cast it. And now, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. The disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said, Pete, it's the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he had been stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. And the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from land, but about a hundred yards off. And when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. 
I'd like to have fish in the Lord's Supper, but I, I get the point. It's a God-prepared meal. When we take the Lord's Supper in a minute, feel the sand beneath your feet. Feel your salt water soaked garments. Feel the tears running down your face as you stand before your Lord forgiven. Restored. And eat the meal that he provides. Bring some of the fish that you just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have some breakfast. Come and have some breakfast. Let's eat with God. Lord, your forgiveness is sweet and needed and refreshing, filling. We count ourselves content right now with that little meal as a taste of things to come. Thankful that you invite us to the seashore. You are a good God. We love you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's sing and worship. Does anybody else need that Sea of Tiberias picture? Does anybody else need it? Man, I'm telling you, I, sometimes where I'm just especially aware of my uh, sin, I can be so mean to my wife. I'll tell you, in front, of, in front of her. I can be so short with my kids. The other day I was teaching. I teach on Fridays. I was teaching and we were learning the love chapter, memorizing it. Love is not impatient. And I'm saying, guys, man, did you hear that? And later on in the day, <laughs> about four times, I'm totally impatient with them. I'm thinking, man, Lord, I need the Sea of Tiberias. I need that sand between, beneath my feet. I need that meal that you offer. I need that forgiveness that only you can give. He doesn't turn a blind, blind eye to sin. God does not wink at sin. He pays for it. He pays for it. That's what we're celebrating in this meal. Let's take it together. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. That's good medicine right there. Man, that's good news. We started the service out that way and it's an appropriate way for us to end it. Let me just tell you that... Um, it's going to be a series of sermons on obedience because obedience isn't, isn't real tidy. You might be thinking, I hope that you're thinking this week as you gnaw on this message, as through small groups and environments like that, as you chew on it. I hope you're thinking, well, what does it mean for him to manifest himself? Because sometimes I'm a good boy and I'm thinking, God, where are you? <laughs> That's where we're going next week. So that's why we're going to have 101 and 201 and 301 and all of them. Every single one of them, we have to be bathed in the blood of Jesus. So it's going to be a neat time together, chewing on obedience together. So um, if I can have the elders come up and Scott, will you come up here too? And we don't have all the guys here today. Nathan Cochran, can you come up here? I didn't, and um, Mike Schweitzer, we didn't ask permission to do this because they probably would have said, oh, no. These are the only two of the guys that we have with us this morning. Uh, Bart and Shannon are not here this morning, I don't think. Unless Bart's laid prostrate back there somewhere. <laughs> and um, um, Jim and Misty aren't here today. Uh, but we got a representative of the band. And, you know, Mercy Me Band, these guys have been at Crosspoint for the last few years. And I, I've actually, I can say this in front of y'all, kind of been convicted about my fear of their fame and my fear of Crosspoint being connected to who they are. Anything, in, wanting them to have a place that's free of the fame, <laughs> where they're just Mike and Abby and Nathan and Amanda, you know, Bart and Shannon and Jim and Misty, because that's who they are. And, and kind of a rebound from that, I fear that I've gone to the other extreme where we, I have not poured myself into praying for their ministry. It's confession. Uh, prayed, prayed for privately, but we've never really sent them. And man, what they do should be an extension of their church. 
they're actually going into a period where they're kind of gearing up for a tour. And they're writing songs that the people of God will be singing for years. Why would we not pray for these guys? They're also going into a time where their wives are having to hold down a fort with a row of kids, every one of them, you know? <laughs> but I'm saying in front of them and in front of this church and in front of my fellow elders that I've, I think I've been fearful, overly fearful, because we, we, don't, we don't want who they are to be connected to who they are. <laughs> They're fellow worshipers, and we want to treat them like that, and we want to minister to them and pray for them and send them. So, Mike, come down here. Let's, let's, Nathan, come stand right here. Let's pray for these guys. And the prayer is big and God is big, so we can pray for these other guys vicariously. God, I want to thank you for these men and for their wives, their families. Thank you for who they are and what they're about, about making your name famous. Lord, I pray that you will just guard them from so many of the just unique and weird temptations of this ministry. I pray that they'll not listen too closely to applause, but that they will deflect it in your direction like a mirror that just reflects it and orients it in your direction. I pray that you'll guard their hearts as they write, as they sing, that it's poured out to you in your direction. Thank you for their pursuit of excellence, for your glory and for your namesake. Lord, I pray that as they write, that you'll guard them from... um, sacrificing truth for creativity. I pray that in that a case where something might rhyme, but it's weak, that they err on the side of truth, and that knowing that if, it, if that's the case, it's not air. I pray that you'll guide their hearts and minds and be poured in, into this ministry for your glory and for your name's sake. I pray for their wives as they're holding down the fort, that they'll be ministered to well, that you'll guard them from the lies of Satan that they'll know that they're loved by a people, loved by their husbands, and loved by their God. Lord, I pray that you'll just be enjoyed and glorified through this ministry. Thank you so much for letting us be a part of it. We send them in your name. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks, guys. Y'all are dismissed. Thank you.